Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello. Thanks so much for joining us. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Amazing interview today. I want to get right to it. I am interviewing Frank King. He is a former road comic, former writer for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He's going to tell amazing stories about his time on the road, some really insider information about Jay Leno and some great stories there. But now he works on the convention circuit talking about mental health issues. He is billed as the mental health comedian. Sounds like a strange billing, but he's going to talk all about that. Really a powerful stuff today. Really powerful stuff when it comes to mental health and you know, how to cope with it, how to help people cope with it that are struggling. Frank is really going to make you laugh. He's going to make you think. He's going to, to help people and, and potentially save some lives. I really, really, I can't say enough about how great this interview was. And uh, without further ado, let's just get right to the interview with Frank King. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? Uh, late. <laughs> oh, that, that's a whole other story. How we both uh, we both kind of got confused, but that's all right. It's like the old uh, joke about we went to different high schools together. I was in one Zoom room, you're in the other. <laughs> We're both wondering where in the heck is that jacket? That's all right. That's all right. So yeah, let's just kind of get started. As I guess as far back as you want to go, how you uh, started your comedy career. I guess how you you rode your first bicycle. It's just kind of all up to you on how far back we want to go. Yeah, because people ask, were you born funny? Yeah, a funny thing happened on the way down to the birth canal. Uh, I actually was born funny, into a funny family. My mom was funny, my dad and my sister were very funny. Um, I told my first joke in fourth grade. Everybody laughed, including the teacher, who was laughing so hard she had to excuse herself to the teacher's lounge. Um, and then high school did the talent show, 12th grade high school talent show. First person ever to do stand-up. It was 1975, kind of the beginning of beginning of the comedy club boom up until about 75, six or seven, were many comedy clubs outside of New York or LA. Hmm. And by 1980, when I moved to San Diego, there was a comedy store branch in San Diego, La Jolla, a branch of the club on Sunset, the famous, the world famous comedy store. And I did open mic night and that was the beginning of the end of my insurance career <laughs> and my first marriage. And uh. Uh, went in uh, 85, day before, day after Christmas, 85, went on the road, 2,629 nights in a row. Oh, wow. Yep, comedy club to comedy club with my lovely wife who came along for the ride. Uh, worked with uh, Foxworthy and Ron White and Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Ellen DeGeneres, Paula Poundstone, uh, Kevin Nealon, Adam Sandler, back when they were just comics. Then did a little radio, mid-90s, and then made the jump from the club circuit to the corporate comedy circuit you know the after dinner after lunch rubber chicken circuit right. <laughs> that lasted until the last recession not a not a sentence i thought i would utter the last recession uh -huh. and speaking dropped off 80 percent overnight we lost everything in chapter seven bankruptcy and that's when i that's when i found out what the barrel of my gun tasted like uh, spoiler alert i didn't pull the trigger uh a friend of mine saw me keynote. He never heard me say that before. And he came up afterwards. Hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Oh, goodness. Yeah. 
<laughs> so at that point I decided, cause I'd always wanted to speak, you know, I always wanted to make a living and a difference. I, when I sold insurance right out of college, I got to see all the great motivational guys like Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy. All I thought I could do that if I just had something to talk about. So I realized I could talk about suicide prevention. So my wife suggested Ted talk. So in 2014, I applied for my first Ted talk, got it and was able to rebrand from funny speaker to speaker. Who's funny. And 2018, I decided that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do a networking speech or motivational speech or whatever. I'm just going to do suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. And then I picked a bunch of target markets, uh, four or five occupations that have a high rate, dentist, doctor, um, construction, and uh, let's see, dentist, oh, and veterinarian. They all have a high rate of suicide and they're trying to do something about it. And so I've been doing that since 2018. I've just been speaking on suicide prevention here and there. And, and since I have five TED Talks, my business coach said, I know you're coaching people on TED Talk for free, Frank, and that's got to stop. Yeah. <laughs> you need a website, you need to charge. So it's a good thing too, because now with the COVID, not a lot of live events taking place. So there's not a lot of bookings. So, but the TEDx coaching I can do right here, you know, by Zoom. So I've, I've shifted all my marketing, still marketing for mental health speaking, but the majority of it's on you know, finding people who want to do a TED talk and coaching them to do it. Right. And I think that that's kind of the funny thing where when you offer certain things for free, it almost makes it not look legitimate. So once you start charging, then people are like, oh, well, this must be a serious thing. Yeah. And I charge a lot of money. So we know it's <laughs> dead serious. Uh, it's And I offer, you know, like an individual coaching. Um, I call it my till death do us part plan. Yeah. <laughs> I coach you one hour a week, unlimited text and email until you get a TEDx talk or yeah. we die trying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your TEDx coach for Has life. Has anyone died trying? No. Well, As a matter of fact, uh, everybody I've coached has gotten it within three to six months and six to 12 applications, except That's one awesome. person. I'm still working on her and it's, it's killing me. She hadn't gotten one yet. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and I've got a group coaching class that I can do. Mm -hmm. But for some strange reason, people go, no, I want the individual coaching. I go, well, you know, it's quite a bit more. That's what I want. Oh, okay, fine. Oh, if you insist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I really, I don't know much about the whole, the TED Talk world and how that works. So, I mean, how, how do these people submit? Do they, I, I assume they have to have some kind of uh, topic that uh, would, would be of interest and then refining it? Or how does that process work? Without uh, charging me too much, yeah. No, it won't cost you a dime. Uh, <laughs> let's see. It's got to be a topic you're passionate about. I know a young woman call me and say, um, I want to talk about customer service. Are you really passionate about customer <laughs> service? Yeah. I mean, if you are, <laughs> that's your thing. Sure. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's got to be something. And what they're looking for is your personal story, what you learned, and then what are you going to teach the audience from what you learned? They always ask, what's your idea? And they say, you know, give me one or two sentences or give me a 10 word elevator pitch or give me a title subtitle. And what I do for my clients is because they get a couple hundred applications, got to make that title, subtitle, 10 word elevator pitch, whatever, really um, in interesting and intriguing and maybe raise a question in the mind of the people who are having to go through <laughs> because they're not looking for a reason to book you. They're looking for a reason, first one, to throw you in the no pile. Uh, the last one I did was called Mental Health and the Orgasm, Treat Your Depression Single-Handedly. <laughs> and the title and subtitle and the idea was good enough that they called me and said, you don't have to audition. Normally you audition, yeah. you're on. 
so that's what I do for my clients is I try to help them make it creative and, and, and interesting enough that whoever's looking at it has to read further into it to find out what it's all about. Yeah. So I know you've, you mentioned a few of yours, but you've done what it was five Ted talks. Is that right? Been picked seven times. Two of them I couldn't make cause I had a conflict with a paid booking, but yeah, mm -hmm. I've done, I've put five, I've recorded five. Yeah, that's awesome. So what you, you've gave us a few names, what are the names of the other ones? And, and I, I assume that most of them do cover the, the mental health area. You're, yeah. you're kind of titled the mental health comedian, which I want to, I want to go into a little <laughs> yeah. bit more, which is, is definitely a kind of an interesting thing. You, you're all into play on words. I would say that's almost a play on words. Yeah. And it is the elephant in the room when I speak, I always address that first, but, um, the first one was called um, starting the conversation on so it's actually called a matter of laugh or death, L-A-U-G-H. But the premise is starting the conversation on suicide because I realized when I was preparing for it, even though one person dies by suicide every 11 minutes in the US, hardly anybody talks about it. But if you mention it, everybody's got a story. So the premise was starting the conversation on suicide. The second one was um, born funny. It was in Scarsdale, New York. It was at a high school and it's a very wealthy area. And the organizers wanted the kids to learn that life's not all about money. So it's born funny. Um, I think the subtitle was, what is a life of means without meaning? Talking about finding, you know, finding what, whatever it is is your passion and your purpose, and it may not involve large sums of money. Uh, the third one was, oh, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness, because everybody I'd ever met with mental illness wasn't completely dysfunctional, also had some corresponding superpower, great writer, artist, musician, comedian, actor, politician, athlete. And I thought this can't be a coincidence that all these talented people are mentally ill. And sure enough, I did my research, it's, it, it, it's a thing. Uh, and then suicide, the secret of my success, because I have chronic suicidal ideation. Uh, I was married to my first wife, a lovely woman, we didn't belong together, selling insurance, no business doing that. I should have been doing comedy, but wasn't. And I was, I realized I was suicidal. And if I didn't change something, I was going to kill myself soon. And my second law was, wait a minute, I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works great, if it doesn't shoot, I can still kill myself. So that was the premise. And apparently, because I've talked to several entrepreneurs and other entertainers have the same basic thought process. They're living a life they know they don't belong in. They think they belong over here doing this and they're going to kill themselves if they don't move. The benefit of that is you're putting everything on one roll of the dice. And, you know, if you stay put, you're going to die. So what the heck? You might as well roll the dice. And then the last one was the funniest, which was the mental health and the orgasm, treat your depression single-handedly. Mm -hmm. My first line is, I love my iPhone, but it's my second favorite handheld device. <laughs> and it's the only one I've ever gotten a standing ovation for. I mean, they, it was just, I had a ball doing it. That so. is, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned... Obviously, you, you talk a lot about suicide and try to bring humor into it. Um, I mean, do you find I, I, it is it's just such a, I guess, a, a deep topic, but bringing humor into it, do you find people laughing and then all of a sudden thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't be laughing about this. This is this is deep. <laughs> yeah, one of the benefits of being a comedian for all that time is, uh, you know, I can structure it in such a way, for example, I say to him, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And then I say, spoiler alert. I didn't pull the trigger, which gets a nervous laugh. Like, should we be laughing at this? <laughs> and then I tell the story about my friend coming up and then they really laugh. Mm -hmm. So I put them at ease and it's not jokes I do about suicide or depression. It's just funny personal stories. 
somebody asked me, does that hold you back from getting a gig? Uh, you know, speaking about suicide prevention? No, no, you missed the point. They want the lived experience, somebody with mental illness. They want the learning objectives, you know, the want me to teach them something. And they appreciate the humor knowing it, it makes all the serious stuff much easier to digest. And suicide and depression run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And of course, I have a personal history and my sister has anxiety and depression. Matter of fact, the entire family is nuttier than a squirrel turd, except one cousin who didn't get mental illness and didn't have high cholesterol. The rest of us do. So I hate him with a passion. It's normally, uh, the, it's normally the opposite way. You've got one crazy cousin and then everybody else, everybody yeah. else is on the straight and narrow. Yeah, the uncle that everybody hates to see coming to the family reunion, oh, great. He's the no, normal one. Yeah, but everybody in my family pretty much, everybody's on some kind of psychotropic, uh, crazy, crazy meds, as my cousin says. But the good news is in my mother's generation, nobody talked about it. Uh, in my generation and the generation that followed, my nieces and nephews, everybody's open about it. So if anybody has an issue, it's, there's not any stigma you Absolutely. know, we're all about getting help for everybody. So that was, that's the upside of, it's kind of like being in a family of alcoholics in one generation, they don't talk about, you know, uh, uncle Bob's under the weather, you know, he's drunk. Yeah. Uh, but in the next generation, because of all the alcoholism, everybody is out and well aware and, you know, so. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I obviously just being able to be open about mental health and mental wellness, I think absolutely makes all the difference. I think that's, I, I, and this is something I'd ask you. I don't know if you know the numbers just because we are, um, you know, a society that talks about it more than, than we used to. Yeah. Are the rates going down or not? Because, you know, there's more and more, I guess, stress triggers out there now than there ever were. Yeah. It, um, the, they think it's going to be tens of thousands of additional Well, last year, uh, 47,000 ish people died by suicide about one every 11 minutes. And they're figuring there's going to be tens of thousands more deaths by suicide. Uh, they call them deaths of despair, you know, evictions, foreclosures. But the problem is it's not really the mentally ill that I'm worried about because those of us who are mentally ill and are high functioning and, you know, it's well managed. We've got a self-care plan. We have um, techniques to, to be, get us out of bed in the morning in an uncertain world because every day is uncertain. It's the people who are working from home and they, you know, it's, it's, they don't know when they're going back and they don't know if the flu season is going to run into the, you know, the pandemic, the COVID season. And so there it's called situational depression. It's all based on the situation we're in now. And some of these folks I imagine have never felt this way. And they're, they may not be sure what the, what the heck's wrong with me, yeah. you know, cause if they've never had clinical depression, then they may not recognize that's what it, a friend of mine called me. And he goes, you in the mental health business, right? I go, yeah, I'm not a clinician, but yeah, I'm in the mental health business. You got to tell me that I've, I've got this thing, this, this condition, and, and, and there's got to be a name for it in the mental health business. Okay, well, give me the symptoms. Well, he said, you know, eat too much, I can, then I can't eat. I sleep too much, then I can't sleep. When I do sleep, I don't want to get out of bed. I can barely drag myself to take a shower and, and run a little wash. And um, I just, you know, I just, is there a name for that? Mental health name? I go, yeah, it's a Wednesday. Uh, that's, that's, welcome to my world, dude. Yeah. You're depressed. What? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I tell people, look, it's situational. It's going to pass. 
I would get a, have I would have a mental health telemedicine appointment. You know, call your company HR, say do we have any benefits, find out what they are, and then do a telehealth mental health evaluation to find out if that's what it is. And then if medication's in order, you know, it's not a life sentence. Just take the medication until this thing passes, and then taper off, and you'll be fine. But you know, they're just not equipped for that sort of situation. Whereas those of us who are you know crazy, um, it's just another day. Yeah, that's and that's not something I've thought about. You know, the the people who who do struggle with this, they they have for for a long time. They they know how to to manage and how to yeah. deal with it. Those who you know are, are dealing with with all the the stresses of COVID now, and, and they don't know how to manage those those type of things. That's those are those are probably the ones that the people are worried about. And then you know the closeness that everybody's in the same house. You know, nobody's going anywhere. The kids are there. The spouse is there. You know, the kids are the kids going back to school? Are they not going back to school? Is it going to be online teaching? You know, so there's that uncertainty that, and then is their job going to be there when this is over? I think one of the smartest things Google did was they said, look, to about 40% of their people, you guys are not coming back into the building till June 1, mm -hmm. which I thought was brilliant because that way they can kind of settle in. You know, they got a target date and so they know they're going to be home until then. So they can, the thing that people, you know, if you go to work every day, you've got a routine. You know, you're eight to five, and but all of a sudden you're working at home, so the routine is gone. They interviewed a guy who was in the space station for a year, pretty much by himself, unless they were coming up to bring him groceries. Mm -hmm. And they asked him, how in the world do you survive that kind of social isolation? He goes, well, bottom line, one word, routine. He said, you got to go to bed same time, get up same time, plan your meals about the same time. You know, your exercise, your meditation, your your recreation time, whether it's Netflix or whatever. And he said, that's the key is having that schedule. And so, cause you know, people are used to getting up a certain hour cause they got to commute to work. Uh, they got to be in the car by a certain time. And now the commutes from the bedroom to the living room, probably not gonna be traffic on the way. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the, there's no routine of any kind. So you really need people with mental illness often established. I get up, I go to bed roughly the same time, get up the same time. I eat meals about the same time. I meditate following a meal every day. I exercise first thing after I get my shower and whatever in the morning. It's comforting. You have to control the things you can't control. That's basically what it is. And let the rest of it go because right. all that stuff's way above my pay grade. Right. I can't <laughs> control any of it. Um, no, the, I mean, the, yeah, the routine thing that, that makes sense. I had to, I not had to, but I, I worked from home for, for several months and you know, all, it made all the difference once I just started rather than getting out of bed, going to my computer and starting to work to, you know, shower, put your regular work clothes on, maybe yeah. not regular work clothes, maybe jeans, but at least get dressed and, and all that just kind of help. You didn't just feel like you were just kind of stuck where you were. You felt like you were actually at work at that. Well, and part of the problem for people at home is the, like I said, the computer's right there. And normally we'd be doing something recreational on you playing, you know, call it call to duty or whatever the, or, or whatever you do. But it all of a sudden became your workstation. And a lot of people never turn the things off. And so it's always there, always on. If it, and if it wasn't on your, your smartphone next to the bed, again, you're doing work at odd hours. So much better to, like I said, get up, shower, shave, just as if you're going to work and then pick a time, sit down and work. And then, um, like of course, with a family and kids, and it's so I recommend that you sit down with the fam, and every you work out a schedule with everybody, 
you know, a time for the kids to study, a time for kids to recreate, you know, a time for everybody to go to bed, get up. So it's, so the entire household has a schedule, you know, and on Mondays, we're all going to town. We're going to do our shopping, hit the Walgreens, fill up the car with gas. Everybody's got their mask. Okay, let's go. All right. So you mentioned routine and we can kind of transition back to the comedy routines and monologues and stuff. I, I noticed on, uh, I guess your bio that you had uh, written for some, some late night shows. Is that right? Yeah, I did um, I wrote for Dennis Miller a little bit on a CNBC show because a friend of mine was on staff. Mm -hmm. I wrote for Leno for about 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, when, when he started, he was the uh, permanent guest host for Johnny Carson. Right. And Carson would pull up on a Friday and go, I'm not working next week. <laughs> and so Mondays was best of Carson a rerun. But that meant four nights for Jay. And Jay had to have 18 jokes a night, four nights in a row, you know, it coming is. up this week. So we started hiring road comics under contract, like contract labor, to pump in, back then it was fax, there were fax writers. We would pump in a dozen, two dozen jokes a day on current events. And I'd get on a couple of jokes a week in the monologue. And then when you got the show for real, they cut a lot of the contract labor loose, but I, I got the fax number again. So I continued with him until he, gave, he, would, he left the show, you know, how many every years later. So it worked out to about 20 years that I was writing jokes for him. That's, that's cool. So what's, what's something that I guess, you know, we would, we'd be surprised about hearing from, from late night TV. Um, Leno was had an amazing work ethic. He, he went to community college, I believe to study auto mechanics. Cause you know, he loves cars All right. and he, uh, he showed up after community college at the Rolls Royce dealership and said he wanted to come to work working on cars. Well, I didn't know this, but you just don't, <laughs> they just don't hire mechanics off the street to work on a Rolls Royce. Huh. <laughs> they sent him to England for training. And so the, you know, the manager of the lot, manager of the dealership chuckled, says, you know, I, I really do appreciate your, you know, your work ethic, but we, we, it's a different process, you know, it's, and so Jay noticed that everybody who worked there in the service area service was wearing this blue jumpsuit. He buys the identical jumpsuit, yeah. <laughs> gets him a lunchbox. And so in the morning, I don't know if he, this probably happens all over the world in the service area, they roll back a big fence. Mm -hmm. And so Jay walks in, <laughs> wearing the jumpsuit, lunchbox for everybody else. Like he owns a place. And so he starts, you know, the guys start to work. And so Jay piddles around for a little while. And then he starts walking by the service bays one at a time until he hears somebody under the hood of a rolls cursing, mm -hmm. banging around and cursing. So he goes into that bay and he says to the guy who's under the hood, Hey man, the service manager sent me in here to help you. And he goes, Oh, thank God. I can certainly use the help. So he and Jay are under the hood of this thing till lunchtime. And Jay said, he can hear the service manager and the, dealership manager coming across the lot and they're saying to each other, no, you hired him. I didn't hire him. You hired him. <laughs> they get to the service bay and the other mechanic pulls his head out from under the hood and goes, I don't care who hires him, but somebody should. The kid is good. Whoa. <laughs> and that's how Leno got his first job without having to go to England and learn how to work on Rolls Royces. That that's something that's a story for sure. Uh, cool. <laughs> his favorite road story, the one at least that he said when I was in his presence was his favorite Memphis, Tennessee, 
back in the day when we were doing road comedy, they would have comedy at places that you probably shouldn't have had comedy. Jay pulls up to this strip club in Memphis. It's called the Mine Shaft. And so he goes up to the, where you buy your, you know, you pay your money to go inside. Uh, and he says to the woman behind the plexiglass, so what's it cost to get in? She goes, it's, it's $5 to get in or it's $10 if you want a miner's hat. You know, one of those um, hard hats with a flashlight on the front? Uh -huh. And Jay says, well, I'm the comic, so I don't think I have to pay. So he goes inside and it's pitch black dark. Uh -huh. And except there are guys sitting there and the way they look at the strippers is they lift their head up with their miner's cap on and the flashlight illuminates the stripper. Oh. So he's having to tell jokes from one of those stages while the women are stripping. And he said he knew his joke was good when the helmets would all of a sudden turn his way and bob up and down when they were <laughs> laughing and turn back. <laughs> well, at least he got their attention for a second. Yeah. Anyway. First, I mean, if you can, if you can distract them from naked women, you've done something. I, I think that's probably a thing for sure. Yeah, so he was a, oh, um, he was a, I had a college agent for a while who was a comedian at one time, uh, part of a comedy team. And they were doing colleges and his partner broke his leg so they couldn't do a college in Pennsylvania. And he knew Leno, it was like springtime, weather's good. Leno was in Boston, I think, and called up Jay and asked him would he work the college for him. You know, it's, it's going to be a really nice weekend. You could ride your bike down. So Leno, yeah, it's okay, I'll drive down. So Leno got on his bike, drove down to this college, and and did the gig and went back home. And my, my agent, Joey, called him and said, uh, Jay, how'd the, uh, how'd the college thing go? Uh, you know, they only had uh, eight kids show up. So I didn't, I didn't take the check. Jay, you're not being paid by the head. You're being paid to show up. I just felt bad about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Leno has a, he's famous for his, his amazing memory. So, okay, that's, that's in the mid seventies. Okay, fast forward to mid eighties, mid late eighties. My college agent, Joey, who'd hired Leno to go in and do that college got an envelope in the mail and Jay had just signed a deal with Doritos to be their spokesperson and he'd gotten a million dollar check. So Joey opens the envelope and in the envelope is a, is a photocopy of a check from Doritos made out to Jay Leno for a million dollars with a little post-it note on it. It says, Hey Joey, I cashed this one. <laughs> I mean, it's like 10 or 15 <laughs> years later. Uh, he was just an amazing memory and, and does stuff like that. You know what? Uh, Anyway, really nice guy and um, obviously hardworking. And he got the Tonight Show when uh, Letterman was up for it. And the reason they say that yeah. is because when Leno would go to a town to perform, he came, I, he came to Raleigh where I was living a number of times. And when he would go to say Raleigh, North Carolina, he would visit the NBC affiliate and ask him, you know, is there anything I do for you? Record some promo for you? Well, when they decide on a late night host or something, you know, where they want to know, they want input from the affiliates, uh, you know, straw poll, nothing binding, but just to find out who, so they did a straw poll of all the affiliates. Who do you want to take over the night show? Mm -hmm. Leno or Letterman? Well, Leno met all of them, mm -hmm. you know, practically. So who's going to get hands down? They chose Leno because, mm -hmm. and, and that's how he ended up getting, you know, they took him seriously and that's how he ended up getting the show. So,
Well, I mean, I, I guess my, my other questions are just back to, you know, the, the mental health side of things. Sure. Um, so one of my other questions would be, you, you mentioned that you do a lot of uh, conferences or you, at least you used to in the healthcare field. Yeah. Because that is one area that, you know, suicide is a little bit more prevalent. So why do you think that is? Do you think it is because, you know, the, just the stresses of that profession or, or something else? Yeah. This, uh, one physician a day before the pandemic died by suicide. So uh, actually it was 400 a year, roughly. Uh, the stress and strain. And, you know, I've talked to a goodly number of doctors. It's not the stress of patient care so much as it is the electronic medical records. I don't know if you've been to the doctor recently, but they don't really make eye contact anymore. <laughs> They're staring at a computer, entering all the information about what medication you take. And then, and then, and then. so that, that's a stressor. And, and because the medical community, hospitals and so forth, medical schools, they tend not to want to deal with physician suicide. You often hear from a hospital where a physician who was not dying by natural causes at an old age, they'll say something like, he died suddenly. What they don't say is he died suddenly by suicide. They tend mm -hmm. to play down, cover up, because no hospital or, or medical school wants to lead the league in physician suicides or physician student suicides. So I think that's part of the problem is they're resisting. I mean, it's, it's doctors are in the, let's see, it's, it's construction, mining, excavation, fishing, farming, forestry, dentists, veterinarians, and doctors. So those three white collar occupations are in the top 10. So yeah, I think, I think part of the problem is that they, there's a stigma surrounding depression, thoughts of suicide. And, you know, these are caregivers. They're supposed to take care of us. We're not supposed to take care of them. Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, obviously, I, I would assume that it's just talk more about it. But how do you think that we do reduce that stigma towards mental health? It's starting the conversation. It's what I discovered when I was preparing for that TED talk. Maybe I told you, was it even though one person dies by suicide every 11 minutes in the U.S., hardly anybody talks about it unless you bring it up. And then, by God, everybody, everybody's got a story. So my job really is to come in and start the conversation and give people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding these issues. I did a Lackland Air Force Base, and they broke for lunch after I got done. And somebody had come out of the lunchroom and said, Frank, you're not going to believe it. Every table I passed, they were all talking about mental health, mental illness, you know, friends, family, themselves. So apparently, <laughs> apparently it worked to start the conversation. Well, the commander of the base had actually lost an airman. She was going to court-martial the airman, and the airman came to her the night before the court-martial and said, please dismiss the court-martial. She said, I can't. And so the next morning, the airman didn't show. They found the airman had died by suicide. So she's carrying that around. That's why she had me come in because she did not want that to happen again. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely understand that it's, it's hard for people to talk about it. I mean, just preparing for this podcast, obviously you go all around the, the country talking about suicide, but I still was thinking, how am I going to, how exactly am I going to talk about this? So, so yeah, I mean, I, I can, I can see how it's just hard for people to, to bring it up in daily life or when it's, and when it's need to, needed to be brought up when, you know, it's, it's hard to even bring it up to somebody who that's their, their, their role, that's their, their position, that's their job. Yeah, well, and part of that, Jackson, is that you don't want to say the wrong thing, so they don't say anything. 
they don't know what to say, so they don't want to say anything. They don't, they don't want to ask if you're suicidal because they're afraid what the answer might be. Then you're on the hook. So there's all that going on. And my, my goal, because people ask me, what's your goal with all this? My goal is to make talking about depression, thought, suicide, mental illness as easy as talking about the weather or sports. Right. So it's not frightening, you know, it's everybody's out about it. And because I think if we were, we were allowed to talk more openly about it, you, you'd have fewer suicides. So, yeah. so what, what would you, for people who are out there listening to this, maybe struggling with, you know, mental health illness, mental health wellness, um, or, you know, suicidal thoughts, what, what, uh, what advice would you give them or, or what would you say to them? Well, number one, I would get evaluated find out if it's you know if if to find out exactly what they believe you have whether it's depression or schizoaffective or bipolar um and then i would also have a physical complete physical because i it doesn't happen often but there there was a gentleman i met who his body wasn't metabolizing iron i think it was and the symptoms mimic depression they did blood work and they see he's anemic and his body's not processing the iron, so they got him on an iron supplement, and lo and behold, the de symptoms of depression disappeared. Now, that's rare, but still, I think you should have a physical. Mm -hmm. And then, if you let's say you work for a company, and you're at home, and you're depressed because of the uncertainty in the world, uh, contact HR, find out you know, the EAP, the Employee Assistance Program, find out what the mental health benefits are, and maybe do a telemedicine interview with a mental health professional to see, are these symptoms, is this depression? Because a lot of neuronormal people, neurotypical people, are situationally depressed because of the uncertainty and all. So, and then if you turn out you do have depression, then I would say, you know, short-term use of antidepressants. And if I'm going to do that, I'd recommend you get the cheek swab DNA test they have now for antidepressants and all sorts of psychotropics. What they do is they take your DNA and they try to match it to the one or two antidepressants that work best with your metabolism. So you don't have to experiment, go on, taper off, go on, taper off. If you have someone you love who you believe is depressed or having thoughts of suicide, this is what I teach. Um, signs of depression. Uh, have difficulty getting up in the morning, rally in the afternoon. Have let their personal hygiene go. That's something you could tell over Zoom. You know, there's COVID casual and then there's depressed. <laughs> you know, haven't shaved, hair's not clean, clothes look a little. Um, but yeah, so you, you could tell that on Zoom. Um, then I tell them, you know, they go, what do you say to somebody who's depressed? Well, first of all, the best thing to do is simply listen. But the second thing, don't tell them, turn that frown upside down, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm -hmm. Have you tried fish oil? <laughs> oh, you do. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times. Um, <laughs> what you do say is, look, I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I'm here, I'm here for you, and I mean it. Depression, I know, is a mental illness. Here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time and help you get the treatment and mean it. And then you have to ask them, and this is the most difficult question, are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask that and you suspect they are, you need to find somebody who can ask that question flat out. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say they take, they're, not, they're not forthcoming. They don't, they don't admit they're having thoughts of suicide. How, how would you notice? How would you know? Well, if they talk about death and dying, they're Googling death and dying. It appears in the theme in their artwork. They're writing their music. Um, they're collecting the means to die by suicide, whether it's stockpiling medication or buying a weapon. By the way, three times as many women attempt than men, but men tend to complete the suicide because they use a handgun or a gun. People getting their affairs in order, people giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. 
And here's a counterintuitive one that's really dangerous. They've been depressed forever and all of a sudden for no apparent reason they're happy. And you're happy because they're happy. They may have chosen time, place, and method. That's why they're happy. Because suicide isn't so much about wanting to die as it is wanting to kill the pain. So let's say somebody is upfront with you about it and says, yeah, I'm having thoughts of suicide. Then you say, well, do you have a plan? And if so, what is your plan? And if it's detailed, you need to do your best to get them on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Or nowadays, for younger people, there's a text line. You text the word help to 741-741. The reason I do all that education is because, because you hear people say this, you know, he died by suicide. We had no idea. He never gave any indication. There's a good chance, and here's why, that he gave some indication. Eight out of 10 people, roughly, who are suicidal are ambivalent. They're not sure they want to do it. Nine out of 10 people who are suicidal give hints in the week leading up to the attempt, which tells you that they want somebody to notice something and intervene. So that's good news. You can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing here is starting the conversation. If you know what to look for, that's the key. And that's why, that's why I teach what I teach is because it's the most preventable cause of death on the planet. If you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Hopefully no, that would, that's, that would, that's, that's amazing advice. I mean, potentially life-saving advice for, for someone who's listening. So, yeah, I mean, I, that's super valuable. So, I mean, I know you mentioned that you're not on the comedy circuit anymore. People can't find you at their local comedy club. But, but yeah. how, can, uh, how can people find you? How can people uh, uh, look you up after this podcast and, and uh, connect? Well, I am the mental health comedian. And I have a website called TheMentalHealthComedian.com. But if you just type in the words The Mental Health Comedian, because it's my Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, mm -hmm. chances are most of my stuff will come right up. I've worked very hard to brand as that. Mm -hmm. So people, and I tell my TEDx coaching and my speaker coaching clients, look, they may not remember your name, so you need to pick a brand so that they can type in, yeah, that guy, you know, the guy, the mental health comedian guy. Mental health community speaker, bang, I come up. That's that's the beauty of a brand is they probably won't remember your name, but if they can remember, and the mental health community is a lot. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's like uh, the elephant in the room. What, a comedian talking about suicide, really? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so that's, that's why I recommend my speaker coaching clients, uh, you know, pick a brand, you know, become a brand for your podcast, your URL, your social media. So the mental health comedian, that's, that's where they're going to be able to find you on all the, all the socials. Yep. That is correct. And I'm, you know, I'm 63, but I'm, I'm active on social media. Well, I'll tell you, I, I can't thank you enough for, for joining me for, for hopefully helping some people, um, you know, whether they're going through, through a, a mental health issue, whether they know someone who is to, to see those signs. I think that that's valuable. And you even have all these, amazing stories about uh, the, the comedy world. So it, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And that was my interview with Frank King. An absolutely amazing guy. I can't thank him enough for being here. Extremely funny, extremely powerful words. I hope those who listened in um, learned something, whether you are experiencing mental health wellness issues, whether you are supporting someone who is, I think he has a, a lot to offer and somebody whose advice we all should take very seriously. Without saying much more, thanks so much for being here. Please do subscribe and take it away, Chris.
This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.